This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B-Podcast Network. Welcome listeners today. I am Ross Romano, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Scott McLeod, who is Professor of Educational Leadership at the University of Colorado, Denver. Scott works with schools and educators all around the world on a mission to make students' day-to-day learning less boring and more meaningful and relevant. Today, we're going to chat about Scott's book, which he co-authored with Jason W. Richardson and Justin Bathin. It's called Leadership for Deeper Learning, published by Rutledge Ion Education. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, Ross. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so let's jump in right here. Um, you know, I like to make a habit right up front of defining some of the key terms we're talking about with a lot of these books and deeper learning is the the real term here, right? So what is deeper learning? Uh, so everybody's got their own definition. You know, uh, when I think about the schools that I work with, um, they're sort of focused on four big shifts from more traditional education. The first shift is around cognitive complexity. How do we get beyond factual recall and sort of mindless procedural regurgitation, like doing those math formulas that you don't really understand, but can sort right. of uh, into, you know, higher level, deeper thinking stuff like critical thinking and problem solving. You're a great collaborator. You're being creative. You know, a lot of that four C's cognitive load stuff that moves you up Webb's depth of knowledge wheel or Bloom's taxonomy or however you want to envision it. So that's kind of shift number one, you know, in deeper learning with the schools that I work with. Second shift is really around student agency, which is really powerful for kids because, you know, as we gain more autonomy and voice and choice, we also gain engagement and motivation. Um, And so that's huge for schools, of course, because we are pretty strong environments of control and compliance. So student agency pushes against some of that. Um, but when we let kids drive and lead more of their own learning, we also have the ability to differentiate and personalize uh, in ways that we don't in a one-size-fits-all model. So that's shift number two. 
Shift number three is really around sort of authentic real world connections. Um, how do we help kids find meaning and relevance in the day-to-day -day learning tasks that we put in front of them so they stop asking, why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What relevance will this ever have for me? And when we connect them to the real world outside of school, um, they stop asking a lot of those questions, kind of wild. Um, and then the yeah. fourth shift is the basic shift from analog to digital. Now, if schools hadn't done that before the pandemic, they surely did it during the pandemic in most places. Uh, but we still have lots of questions around what does it really mean to prepare a kid who's information literate, who's technology fluent? Um, and more importantly, not just to use tech for tech's sake, but to use technology as a powerful lever to make those first three shifts that I mentioned happen. Kids can do different kind of thinking work. They can do more authentic work with tech than they can without it. So that's sort of like my four big bucket areas of what deeper mm -hmm. learning is. Yeah, excellent. And and so throughout the writing of this book, you and your co-authors uh, interviewed leaders at 30 different deeper learning schools. And I think you spoke with each of them multiple times over um, a couple of year period there. How did you how did you identify the schools beforehand to say, OK, these are the people we want to talk to for this book? Yeah, so Jason and Justin and I have known each other a long time, um, and we were having this conversation about how we sort of wanted to unpack the leadership side of deeper learning. My last mm -hmm. book had really unpacked the instructional side of, of you know, redesigning day-to-day -day lessons and units, and we're like, well, of course, the learning teaching process is embedded within school structures, and so what, as a leadership professor, I'm always interested in systems, so what are those key behaviors by school principals, what are those support structures that are necessary if you want deeper learning to happen. So uh, we put our heads together and we said, let's hear from the source, right? Let's go right. visit some innovative schools all around the place that are doing really great work. And we also tried to target some schools that maybe hadn't gotten a lot of attention beyond uh, their local area, right? So for example, most people have at least heard a little bit about high tech high, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, not a lot of people have heard about, say, South Middle School in Harrisburg, South Dakota, <laughs> right? Right. Right, um, right? So we were trying to bring to light some schools that we knew were doing some good stuff, um, but maybe we're under sort of the national radar. So we identified 30 of those schools and there was a few national flagship schools like One Stone in Boise, Idaho that people have heard of. But a lot of schools um, are doing really fantastic stuff in their community, but may not be more well-known. Uh, we got some of those schools off the Getting Smart website, talking with the folks there because they do a great job of profiling schools and other schools that we had visited or knew about. Um, or had recommendations for us and so on. And we were just trying to get a spread, you know, sort of across the country. We had a few international schools. So we ended up with 30 um, and we talked with every principal right. and uh, usually several times. And then we also did site visits for 28 of the 30 before the pandemic hit. And, you know, our driving question was, what do leaders at innovative schools do that's different from their counterparts in more traditional schools, you know, like the one down the road? Right. And they told us and they showed us and it was awesome. Yeah, excellent. And and to shamelessly plug one of our episodes here a couple of months ago, um, for anyone who hasn't heard, we spoke with Sarah Strong, who is a teacher at High Tech High, uh, and her co-author, Gigi Butterfield, who was her student at High Tech High, um, in our Dear Math episode. So um, a lot of what we'll talk about today, that's a nice compliment, because you'll kind of hear some of the approach that was innovative there that led to, you know, a circumstance where a teacher and a student co-authored a book together. Um, uh, so Scott, when you went into these schools, 
tools, right? I mean, we'll, we'll certainly get into a lot of the learnings and, and what you realize these leaders were doing differently in the schools. But uh, of course, you also had things that were interesting you to begin with, like what you wanted to learn about and what you wanted to ask about. Um, some of that might have been based on kind of certain elements of the quote unquote traditional school that you feel like it's important to be moving beyond, right? Like not not all traditional things are bad, but there's certain things we're saying, all right, these are areas that are, you know, we could use some innovation and I'm interested to know how these schools are doing that. Um, or it could have been, you know, other things based on your experience, your background, right? Leaders that you're familiar with that you said, all right, I, I really have these things in mind. So what, what were some of those things that you talked to them about um up front and really you know the, the focuses of those discussions to really dig into what these leaders are doing and what their schools are like yeah um well i'm a i'm a leadership guy but i'm also a learning guy so mm -hmm. my my orientation always uh initially is can we unpack the kind of rich robust learning that we're pretty sure is happening in this building <laughs> right right um so really trying to understand sort of how lesson and unit design works, how project design works, what kind of curriculum scaffolding is happening. Um, you know, we asked lots of questions, for example, around pacing and coverage of standards and how do you think about those tests at the end of the year and all that kind of stuff that, you know, educators in traditional schools bring up as concerns or questions about why they might not move towards deeper learning. And yet these schools are finding ways to, to address those, right? So that's sort of approach number one. Um, I think, you know, I'm also, I'm always interested in, you know, we were looking for things like, um, what's the interaction with teachers in this kind of space? Is it different from a traditional school? Um, you know, are, are we trusting teachers in a different way? Do teachers have autonomy in a different way? Um, what kind of, you know, professional learning do teachers get to teach in these sort of larger, more robust modalities? Um, you know, so questions around that. Um, if we could get at it, we always like to know around sort of like what's your relationship with your community and your parents as as they think about this different kind of schooling, right? Which looks right. very different from sort of what they grew up with. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's true in almost every deeper learning school is that the level of student engagement motivation is really, really high. Um, and so to just sort of understand what the elements are in the building that leads to that student engagement and motivation in a different way from a more traditional school where they might be excited to see their friends, but they're not super enthused about the content that they're learning most of the time. So those right. are some sort of key look fors. Yeah, excellent. And, and it occurred to me in, in reading through the book and thinking about our conversation here and just thinking about the conversations we typically have on this podcast, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of the folks you work with as well, that we we probably do have some selection bias in the, the people we talk to most often and the things we talk about. Um, and it made me ask the question of, if we think about most school leaders, most principals, assistant principals, or, you know, anybody else in, in schools that gets into that profession and thinks about, okay, here's what I want to achieve in this role. And here are my objectives. Do you think most leaders even really think about being innovative and what that means? And, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean, if they're listing out, okay, here's my objectives, you know, 
is it on most people's list to say, what are the areas where I can innovate? Or are they thinking about, um, for example, you know, obviously going into school and saying, all right, I want to create a more equitable learning environment for all of my students. And, you know, you have a good quote in the book from Carlos Moreno that says innovation work is equity work these days, right? Because when we're trying to change something that's not working, an area that is um, where the status quo is, is ineffective, um, innovation really is the solution. But a lot of times, either we have a connotation in our mind that innovation means technology, right? And you mentioned not doing tech for tech, that it means certain things, or um, just to say that when we are training for and preparing for the role, right? And we're thinking about the way it's typically done and seeing how others are doing it. We have a certain vision and it it may not be like, you know, that's not the first thing we're jumping for. So I'm just wondering, you know, is this a, a, a word, even as we're talking about what it means and what it looks like, um, that, that most leaders are even necessarily considering it. And if they if they do, how do you think they're defining it and how does that align to the way that you're kind of defining it? So I think most school administrators would say that they are innovating, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm also cognizant that everybody is a product of the system in which they're embedded. Right. Um, so Edward Deming, the organizational guru, always reminds us that if you ever have trouble with any individual's behavior, first look to the system in which they operate. That's probably responsible for about 95% of what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when we have principals saying that they're innovating now, they're innovating, but they're not really changing school, right? Like, you know, technology is a classic example that you brought up, right? So cool. We're innovating. We got all this new technology. Cool. How are you using it? Uh, to do the same things we used to do in an analog way, right? Mm -hmm. I used to lecture at kids with a chalkboard or an erasable, you know, dry erase board. Now I lecture at kids with a $4,000 smart board. Well, okay. That's not really like innovating in the sense that we've actually changed, you know, the learning teaching process, but right. is innovating in a sense that within your system, you got some technology. So I think, you know, trying to figure out how are we defining the parameters of innovation uh, is embedded within the system that we're talking, that we're talking about. That's why this book was not called leadership for innovation. It was called leadership for deeper learning right. because it's aimed in a certain direction, right? It's a particular kind of innovation and, you know, technology is a piece of that equity is a piece of that. Um, but it's really sort of saying, how do we reinvent school in a different way? Because most schools right now are organized around lower level learning and mastery thereof, not deeper learning. So, but I, I think most, you know, school leaders would say they're innovating, but mm -hmm. with the system in which they're embedded. And that could be the school district system. That could be the state or federal system that they think they're operating within whatever. So what, what are, are there certain systemic or structural factors that are inhibitors to the type of innovation that you're really, you know, that these leaders are doing, right? I mean, you have these 30 schools that you looked at and, and we'll, we'll talk in more detail about some of the things they're doing, but um, part of the reason they are the exception may relate to a particular vision and plan that these leaders have. Part of it could be that they're in an environment whereby they weren't prevented from trying certain things. I think one of the examples that you mentioned in the book, just as far as something that's sometimes stymies it is, we have a certain mindset of what a school looks like, right? And if I walk into one of these schools, I might say, this doesn't look like a school. 
something's wrong here, <laughs> right? And, and and oftentimes in all in all types of fields, things that are ahead of their time aren't necessarily appreciated in their time because it just looks too different from what we're used to. Um, you know, but that's but I, I do think that that challenge is in there to say, look, if you kind of want to transform your school to get toward this type of deeper learning, if you want to make some of these changes, you have to be aware from the beginning that this is a challenge you're taking on because you are fighting against some of these structures that are not not going to make it easy. You know, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to be impactful, but there's going to be certain people who don't see it that way. Um, are, are there certain factors like that that seem to come up time and again that either maybe some of these folks worked through or got beyond them once they were able to prove what they were doing was working or um, or they said, well, I'm really glad we didn't have that here in this school or this district because that would have been challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for quoting the book. That line is from me um, about around mindsets. Um, and they're, you know, again, our mindsets of what school should look like are deeply, deeply embedded in our brains. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the number one barrier, right? Is that just getting parents and communities and educators to say learning in schools can look really different. And that could be a good thing because a lot of kids are looking for something different, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if we can get past that mindset, you know, and that's hard because, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of really controlling state departments of education. There's a lot of really controlling, uh, you know, national ministries or school districts or whatever, right? And so if you're a building level principal who's trying to do some interesting work within your building, you're constantly, constantly battling the people above you, right? And trying to figure out how to navigate within a uh, space of constraint and, right. and, and maybe mandates, right, to do something different. Um, and so that's always a challenge. And I think one of the things we underscored in the book, particularly in the last chapter, was just the bravery of many of these school leaders who are willing to take a stand for different learning experience for kids and are willing to take the hits. You know, one of the principles that we talked about uh, up in Pasco Bay, Maine, you know, like he got run out of his previous community for trying to do this work and luckily landed in a place where he could, you know, make his thing happen, uh, you know, in a new, in a new place. But, you know, you have to be willing to take the hits and you might also have to be willing to leave. I think the other thing that's been really interesting for me to observe in these large metropolitan school districts here in America is that you take a school district like a Denver or a Chicago or maybe even a Washington, D.C., for instance. Um, and what they will do is they will sort of recognize the power of deeper learning in that mm -hmm. they will let a few schools do that. Right. Right. And they might be schools within the system. They might be a charter school that they approves, you know, whatever. But then what happens is that, you know, when somebody comes to them and says, wow, you know, a whole bunch of kids need a lot more deeper learning experiences in their day-to-day -day life. Um, and the district will say, oh, we have that. It's one of these five schools. You can go to one of those. You know, and I'm always thinking about, well, what about the other umpteen hundreds of schools that you have? And kids don't get any of that in those schools. And that is correct, right? So they're mm -hmm. sort of using the small number of deeper learning schools as a buffer against moving the rest of the system in directions we know we need to move. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things which we talked you know, earlier about defining that term deeper learning, um, the other term in the, the book title, leadership for deeper learning is leadership. Right. And, you know, it's worth even defining that and saying, look, what what do we mean by leadership um, beyond 
just the actions that the person with the leadership title takes. And in fact, sometimes totally independent of those actions. And one of the big things is that vision piece. Um, and I always think of like leaders with a strong vision as they're almost, they're creating a current or a tide, right? And you just kind of get swept up in it. And then your, your colleagues, your staff, your faculty, your students become a part of it without even realizing it because there's such a compelling vision of what we're working toward it's optimistic it's uh, ambitious um you know and i have been listening recently to this a podcast series called how to take over the world which is not quite as uh <laughs> severe as it seems but it's about you know leaders in different fields and and what are the things that made them successful and so you have your leaders like Thomas Edison or Napoleon, and particularly people like Walt Disney or Steve Jobs, who they weren't the technical geniuses, right? They weren't management geniuses. <laughs> they weren't great at the logistics, but they articulated a vision that people wanted to move towards. And they, you know, they were the visionaries. And we even um, recently on this show chatted with Mike Gaskell about his book, Radical Principles, and the, the subtitle to that book is A Blueprint for Long-Term Equity and Stability at School. And I asked him, how do those ideas go together, right? Because uh, equity and disrupting inequity by, by its very nature is destabilizing by, by in design because you need to destabilize the status quo. And, and really what it came back to is that idea of you're articulating that vision for what an equitable high impact you know school looks like and you're moving people toward that vision so you're not focusing on the status quo and how it's changing you're you're moving toward it so um yeah let's talk about that vision uh piece and, and why that is such a critical part of leadership in these schools yeah, absolutely. And I think two big thoughts around that. One is that every single one of these schools has a really robust vision of student learning mm -hmm. that permeates the day-to-day -day work. And that's one of the key differences that we articulated between the schools that we visited and maybe a more traditional school down the road is that every school has a vision statement, has a mission statement, has, you know, purpose statement, whatever. Um, but it's often, you know, stuck in a binder on a bookshelf. It's a meaningless poster on the wall. If you walk around the halls and ask, you know, how that vision is being implemented on a day-to-day -day basis, you don't see it much in evidence, you know. So, you know, I visit all these schools all the time where they'll have some kind of language around blah, 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 lifelong or future-ready learners, blah, 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 right? But then, you know, it looks the same way it did for the last 30, 40, 50 years in the classrooms as you walk around. And so it's great that you say you're preparing future ready learners, but you're not actually doing the things that would prepare future ready learners, right? You're still preparing kids as we did three decades ago. Right. So there's a very tight connect. And I, and I hope we, we bring that out in the book between sort of like, we have this really strong vision for learners and we create the structures and day-to-day -day practices that make sure that happen, right? It's sort of right. this idea from Richard Elmore of internal accountability, right? Like we have the ability within the organization to make happen the things that we say we want to make happen. So that's sort of first big idea is a really tight connection there um, between vision and, and rhetoric and reality, which we often right. know in traditional schools. And the second thing is that um, most of these schools have now evolved to a place where 
that vision is not person dependent, which is really important, right? Because Ross, you know, you could be the world's most dynamic principal and you can come in and get everybody fired up and we're all headed this way and let's all go. And everybody's like, woohoo, let's go, right? And then when you leave, if you haven't built capacity and structures in the school, that just vanishes. And we see over and over again that really interesting things happening in schools stop abruptly when the leader leaves. Um, but, you know, if high tech high, if the, if the principle of high tech high leaves tomorrow, right, high tech high is still going to be high tech high. They're not going to stop and revert back to a traditional school because they built the capacity and the structures and the shared vision and commitments, not just the leader's vision, right, that this is what we're all about and this is how we're going to operate. And I think when we see a lot of traditional schools try to move in this direction, there's not enough capacity building. It's still mm -hmm. too person reliant. And if that person gets a different opportunity or gets hit by a bus or whatever, um, then all of a sudden it just stops. Right. And I've seen over and over again uh, where that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, um, and you referenced where the, you know, the, the rhetoric and reality needing to, to match up and uh, makes me think about how leaders are, defining and then ex, uh, demonstrating fidelity to their expectations for student success and using that as the you know the driver to say okay if these are the things that we want our students to be able to do and be successful then are we doing the things as a school that are going to help them achieve that um, what, what did you observe in that area I just think there's a really tight alignment and intentionality of structures, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the schools I always like to use an example is New Village Girls Academy, right? Mm -hmm. So New Village is in the book, uh, they're an amazing place. Their primary population is girls who are already parenting, who are pregnant. Um, and, you know, these girls have tremendous needs. Uh, they're usually coming from households of poverty. Um, English may not be their primary language. They have a whole host of sort of, you know, negative conditions in their lives that affect their academic success and so on. And New Village is great at getting them back on track. But New Village has, you know, come together and said, what are the key structures and processes that are necessary to move these young girls forward? And, you know, and sort of keep them on track to graduate, head into careers in college and so on. And they settled on four, right? They settled on four big things that they do really, really well. One is they do a tremendous job at advisory. So advisory is really sort of like an internal family setting, right? Where, you know, you have the same advisor and she's always checking on you and she knows everything about your personal life. And she's asking if you need resources or supports for you and your baby and your family and so on, right? Which is very different from how we do advisory, like at the high school down the road, we're like, hey, we bought this curriculum and we have this 30 minute advisory module 3.B that we're going to do on February, you know, 10th. And the kids don't buy into it. And, uh, you know, the teacher doesn't buy into it. Like it's just a whole different sense of like advisory as community building space and relational space as opposed to fakey vendor bought space, right? So that's like number one. So because what they're trying to do here is they know that most of these girls may or may not have a stable adult in their lives, and they're trying to provide that community and that and that caring adult there. So that's like mm -hmm. pillar number one, right? Pillar number two is 
Uh, let's help these girls realize they can be really powerful learners through inquiry-based projects. Uh, we're not just doing, you know, credit recovery and, you know, low-level worksheets um, to cover standards. So that's number two. So remember that you can be a powerful learner again, and this is how. Number three is let's help you make positive connections back to your community. You know, you may feel that your community has wronged you, has not done well by you and your family. We're going to send you on internships twice a week where you can be a valued contributor, not just free labor. You're going to learn how to run the place that you're going to. <laughs> um, and you can have up to eight different internships where you can try out different career and life pathways, see what you're interested in, what you might want to pursue later, and also recognize that you can be a valued member in that space. Um, and then the fourth one is really around sort of, you know, if we know that these girls are dealing with a lot of chaos in their lives is can we center mindfulness and sort of you know, like, you know, spiritual and emotional and cognitive recovery uh, when mm -hmm. things go off the rails. And those four things working together, really strong, caring adult through advisory, uh, really strong, robust learning through inquiry and project based learning, um, strong connection to the community through internships and the ability to navigate challenging circumstances and stay centered within that, right, are the four key things for New Village's success. And I think that's the kind of intentionality of structures and processes we see in these buildings. And I think there's this misperception that deeper learning schools are just places where kids do whatever they want, and it's chaos and anarchy and whatever, but there's really, really thoughtful structures in place mm -hmm. to make ambiguous, amorphous, we don't know where it's going learning happening, right? Which right. is actually much harder than everybody's gonna do the same thing on the same page at the same time, at the same you know time of the year. Um, that's much easier to do actually than the kind of work and processes and structures that these schools are making. Yeah, yeah. If you, ha if you had to choose one, um, when you think about what the deeper learning schools are doing, uh, with respect to both their faculty and their students. Do they need to expend more effort on establishing new expectations for what teaching and learning will look like in that school or on avoiding extinguishing the expectations that teachers and students are coming in with because I you know I want you know some of these things might sound so different from what teachers would typically be doing but that's not to say that most teachers wouldn't enter the profession wanting to do those things and quickly learn that they're expected to do something different same for students so you know it's I'm sure there's some of each but if you had to kind of go one way or the other what do you think it's more of I think the second one, and, and I'm I'm looping back to something that you said earlier in this conversation, Ross, where you were talking about why leaders go into the profession, right? Mm -hmm. and, and teachers also go in the profession. We want to make interesting, powerful things happen with kids, right? Like nobody went into education as a teacher or principal to say, I want to create school environments that bore the heck out of kids, mm -hmm. right? That, they, that they're apathetic about, that they find irrelevant. Future, right? And yet we perpetuate those models on a day to day basis. Somehow we as educators become socialized into school as it's always been, and we accept sort of the realities of those circumstances. And so I got to lean into number two because what we need to do is we need to sort of, you know, like a snowplow, clear out all the stuff in front that we think is holding us back and, and re reignite the sense of possibility and opportunity and joy and engagement and all the things that we went into education for. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 
you know, I want that in every school. I don't want you to have to leave your neighborhood school and to go to one of these deeper learning schools to make that happen. You should be able to make that happen with your local kids and your local families, right? Yeah. Instead of being beat down by the system. So the system itself, again, going back to the Deming idea, can be very oppressive in terms of limiting our perceptions about what's possible. And I think what's great about these schools and the kind of work that I'm trying to do is trying to reignite the possible and help us reconnect to why we went into education in the first place. Right. Yeah. And particularly with you know, something like learning, right? We're, it seems to be appropriate to, to talk about how leaders are creating the conditions for deeper learning, right? Because each student is different. Each teacher is different. All those relationships are different and they have to engage in their own way. And it's not about pushing it forward, but it's about giving them the ecosystem in which to learn. And I, I kind of noticed that even in the kind of subtitle of the book, um, facilitating school innovation and transformation, right? So it's not how leaders innovate and transform, it's how they facilitate these things to happen. So I think that leads us to the question of the who, you know, who are the different people in these schools that are really playing key roles in turning them into these deeper learning schools, because I don't imagine that it's just a top down, okay, there's just this one charismatic leader and they just tell everybody what to do and everybody does that. It's it's creating you know a, a, an environment that is transformed um, where you just will see teaching and learning happening differently. So, you know, who are some of those people in those different schools that you notice? Maybe, you know, it might be different school to school. You might have particular examples or just general thoughts on the drivers behind, okay, we're, we're really transforming these environments. Yeah, that's the cool thing about these schools is that it's everybody. Mm -hmm. um, right. So one of the things that we saw over and over again in these buildings is there's an extraordinary level of trust and ownership by teaching staff and students and families. So this is a collectively, these are collectively owned and shared spaces, right, where we have come together and say, this is what we think powerful and meaningful learning looks like. And that's very different from a top-down system, right? A top-down system, which unfortunately a lot of educators and kids are embedded in, you know, looks like we have this curriculum that we have to cover and we have to, you have to make sure that all these things happen by the end of the year because you're going to be tested on it. And here's a pacing guide and here's a scripted curriculum. And you might even have scripted lessons with words you're supposed to read off the page and certain questions that you're supposed to ask, like, right? Like, that approach, which unfortunately we see in a whole lot of schools, is really around we don't trust kids, we don't trust teachers, we don't trust families, we're going to put them in sort of this teacher-proof, foolproof method, and if you just stay on track day after day doing the things in the order that we said you were supposed to, that you will do well at the end on this outcome that we say you're supposed to do well on. And these deeper learning schools are wide open, like they're still covering content, they're still learning important skills, right? Like they still do fine on those state assessments that we care about and all that, but it's just so much more open. And basically what we're saying to kids and families and teachers is, what would be interesting ways to learn this, right? Mm -hmm. And they create these big open-ended learning experiences and projects where you can find your way within that space. So I liken it to sort of like, it's not that you can just, you know, we're just throwing the middle of the ocean, right, without any guidelines to go in any direction, like there's still fences around the edges, right, curriculum that we have to cover, essential skills that we need, but within, but that field is really big, and you have lots of directions to run within it, 
right? And as long as you accomplish certain things, you know, then we let you out of the gate at the end of the project and be like, congratulations, you accomplished these things. But you have so much autonomy uh, within the space to go to tap into your own skills, your own interests and passions, to make contributions in ways that you think are effective, to grow yourself in new ways, right? And, and that requires an extraordinary level of trust by mm -hmm. the school leadership to basically say, we need certain things to happen from a curricular standpoint and an instructional standpoint, but how you decide to do that is up to you, right? And that's what's the beauty of these schools is that these kids and these teachers feel validated and valued and have this incredibly strong sense of ownership in what they do, as opposed to the system doing things to them, which is how we often operate in a more traditional system. Yeah. How, how are these schools, how are they defining success and how are they determining when it's time to change some more right i mean innovation yeah. uh by, by definition right. is not uh it's not a one-time thing um so i'm sure some of these schools have gone through multiple cycles of either they tried something that didn't really work or um this thing worked for a while and then we need to do something new but you know, how are they engaging in that process yeah i think one of the things that's notable about these schools is they value a bunch of stuff that we also say we value in traditional schools, but they actually do something about it. So every school will say that they value academic success, right? As, as defined by achievement tests or, you know, reading skills or numeracy skills or whatever, right? But then these schools say yes. And in addition to that, we also want our kids to be fantastic thinkers, to be wonderful problem solvers, to be good collaborators, to be technology fluent, to be uh, good teammates and coworkers, you know, whatever. Um, and they have structures in place, you know, through rubrics and, you know, various kinds of assessments to make sure that those things also happen, right? So again, this intentional alignment of structures and processes and sort of this internal accountability, where in a traditional school, they'll be like, oh yeah, the four C's and we want kids to be creative and collaborative, whatever. but they don't assess that. They don't put in structures to make sure that happens, right? They say that they want critical thinking, but they don't actually create assessment structures and instructional structures that ensure that kids are critical thinkers and these schools do, right? So they value a much broader sense of, you know, students as human beings, the whole child idea, right? And, the, and they create intentional ways to make that happen and to assess it. Um, so that's one key difference. Where do they go next? Uh, you know, a lot of them um, are always tinkering around the edges. They're, you know, they're constantly trying to figure out how do we make this project better? How do we give more things over to students? How do we help families get involved in a different way? How do we make sure that, you know, we're uh, being equitable in terms of making sure that all kids have access to deeper learning opportunities? And then a number of these institutions, once they kind of have proof of concept, they're starting to scale. They're like, more kids need this. One of our big challenges is how do we replicate the model in other communities and other settings? So I think that's where a lot of them are trying to head. So Awesome. And so thinking about the actions, you know, they might, um, we've, we've certainly touched on a variety throughout, but for any that we haven't or any that are worth reinforcing, um, what do leaders at, at these innovative schools do that's different, you know, than what you may see from their counterparts at a, um, you know, a, a more traditional school? I think a couple of things that strike me. One is around um, how they think about coverage of standards, mm -hmm. right? So um, in a lot of school districts, you know, like I said before, they make these pacing guides or scripted curricula or whatever. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to take 
whatever that body of standards are in that discipline area that they think kids need to know or is mandated by the state or whatever. And they're trying to break it down into small granular chunks and they just uh -huh. go chunk to chunk to chunk throughout the year, right? Now that doesn't help student meaning making at all because they're experiencing a bunch of discrete, isolated, disconnected chunks instead of sort of, you know, the holistic, all of it. Um, and so from a curricular standpoint, what they're doing instead is they're saying, we also want kids to master many of those standards, same standards you are, but they do two things. One is they narrow the number of standards that they say are important so they can really focus on the, the stuff that's that they really need for the next grade level, conceptual understanding, whatever. And they go deep and hands-on and active in those to make sure the kids hang on to them, right? So fewer, but deeper and active and hands-on as opposed to many more and shallow and skipping across the surface. Uh, which, of course, leads to better retention. Um, so that's the first thing they do with curriculum. And then the second thing is that um, they think much more interdisciplinarily with these projects. So it's not that the English teacher is on her own, the science teacher is on his own, the art teacher is on her own. Those three might be collaborating together to create a really interesting interdisciplinary experience for kids that might last multiple weeks and might hit multiple standards in all mm -hmm. three discipline areas, English and science and art, right? right? And so it's just a very different way of thinking about instructional design um, than what we traditionally do in schools. So as somebody said to me recently, it's the difference between being collegial with your faculty peers in a more traditional school and being co truly collaborative, uh, where you're literally working together to make things together for kids. Um, so that's number one, is, is how they think about instructional space and planning. The second, I think, big thing that these leaders do is, is uh, around time right? Like time in these schools is not broken up into, you know, eight 45 minute blocks <laughs> uh, right. with a discrete subject area in each. They create these much larger blocks of time per day, per week, per month uh, throughout the year where kids can really have the time to dive deep into something instead of having to shut it down, you know, five minutes after they really got into something. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really powerful too, because I think a lot of traditional classroom teachers feel like they're prisoners of time. They would like to do more interesting things with kids in their science class, but just about the time we get this interesting thing up and running for our lab, we have to shut it back down again because they have to go to lunch, right? right. Um, so the way they think about time is another really key lever in these buildings. Is Are any of those things maybe the, the most natural or accessible place to start if, um, you know, if, if someone sort of reads the book and they're thinking about this and, and they realize they haven't quite engaged in this before, but they want to start redesigning their school to be, um, you know, more, uh, have more opportunities for deeper learning. But where, where would you recommend they, they try to start? Uh, I think it starts with conversation, actually. Um, you know, I'm working with a couple of schools right now that are trying to transition into some new directions. And the number one thing they need is not somebody showing them what to do. They actually have a lot of wisdom and experience and expertise in-house. What they need is permission to have a different kind of vision and space and time to collaborate around that. Um, and so I think, you know, time is one of the scarcest resources we have in schools. And if we want educators to move in new directions to serve kids in a different way, we have to give them time to just talk and collaborate and build together. Um, and so, you know, deeper learning schools have set up structures to make sure that happens. 
But I think a traditional school that's thinking about transitioning probably doesn't have those structures in place, right? We have an occasional late starter early out. We have an occasional PD day. And other than that, we're buying people's time with sub days or over the summer or whatever. It's like, it's really hard to get people together, even if they have the expertise and willingness to move in new directions, just to build. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we start with time and conversation. Excellent. So here's a question that um, we not always, but often like to, to touch on at the close of these conversations. And it seems to be the toughest one for every author to answer, uh, which is uh, if a reader could only read, you know, one chapter or one, one part of the book, which, which one would you direct them to? Oh, absolutely. Without hesitancy, chapter three. Um, super easy for me to answer, not just because I wrote that chapter, but because <laughs> chapter three is where we describe the learning and teaching that's happening in these schools. Right. And the whole intent of that chapter is to help people understand what kids could do instead if we created the right structures and were brave enough to move. Um, and so I hope that every reader who intersects with leadership or deeper learning in any way whatsoever gets a chance to at least read chapter three, because I want, or want them reading is I want them reading. Wow. Those kids did that. Wait. And the next paragraph, those kids did that. And on the next page, those kids did that, right? And I want that vision of powerful learning to pull us toward it, right? Mm -hmm. So not somebody like Scott McLeod being like, hey, 21st century, go, 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 we got to change. Like, that's a push model. That never works. We want the pull model where we say, there's some really interesting and compelling learning happening with kids. I want our kids to be doing some of that. And that's what the function of chapter three is. Excellent. So um, we'll put the link to the book and your website and some of your other resources below, but is there anywhere else uh, you'd like our listeners to find you to, to learn about anything else you're working on or to connect? Uh, thank you so much, Ross. Uh, so you can always find me at Dangerously Irrelevant. And if you click on the contact link, all my social media platforms are there. Uh, I launched two new resources this spring, which I'd love to mention real quick. Uh, one is leadertalk.org. We're actually doing 30-minute podcasts of leaders in these schools, in these deeper learning schools, right? So let's have the leaders in their own voices tell us what they're doing and doing differently. So really excited about that podcast series. Um, and they're short snippets, like I said, 30 minutes or less, so they're great for a drive home. And then the other thing we're doing is we're just about to launch redesigningfordeeperlearning.org, which is a second podcast in which we redesign lessons and units on air for deeper learning. So uh, my co-host and I, we are bringing lessons and redesigning them to make them more robust and you know interesting along those four shifts that I mentioned. And once we drop about four episodes, we're gonna start inviting teachers to bring us lessons and units, and we're gonna redesign together live on the podcast. So it should be really fun. And as Excellent. far as I know, I think we're the only podcast that's redesigning lessons live, which is kind of cool. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like a great concept. So listeners, definitely check out those podcasts and these other resources. We'll link to everything below so you can find it. Uh, but certainly we'll put the link there to where you can find the book Leadership for Deeper Learning, all of Scott's other resources. And please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one and visit bepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Scott, thanks so much for being on The Authority. Ross, thanks so much for the invite. It's been a blast. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, 
and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.